All right, gang. We are going to reconvene here and get rolling in just a minute. And so we have uh, a little something for you to kick off the teaching. Why do the chicken coops only have two doors? Because if they had four, it would be chicken sedans. <laughs> oh my gosh. What do you call a laughing motorcycle? A Yamaha. <laughs> a Yamaha. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the greatest babysitter mentioned in the Bible? David. He rocked Goliath to sleep. At what time of day was Adam created? A little before Eve. Get out of here. What do you call a cow with no legs? Ground beef. <laughs> All right, what do you call a fish with two knees? A two-knee fish. Two -knee. <laughs> I know, it took me a little long. I, late. A cop just knocked on my door and told me that my dogs were chasing people on bikes. My dogs don't even own bikes. <laughs> Did you know the first french fries weren't actually cooked in France? They were cooked in Greece. I tried to eat a clock the other day. It was really time consuming. <laughs> mwah, mwah. <laughs> Who was the smallest person in the Bible? Ne <laughs> Nehemiah. <laughs> Need an ark? I know a guy. <laughs> How does Moses start his morning? Anybody? Hebrews, a pot of coffee. <laughs> nice. Can February March? No, but April May. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the greatest comedian in the Bible? Samson. He brought the house down. <laughs> yeah. Those are awful. Awfully good. Just like what I grew up with.
I don't know what I don't know what was worse the the jokes or their reading skills. I mean that was just oh funny. So the kids are asking me yesterday. You know that you're getting old and grumpy when <clears throat> our our kids were like, "So dad, what do you want for Father's Day?" You know, and I was like, "Huh? How about how about when I tell you something, you do it the first time all day long. How about that? There's a novel idea. So uh, that's what I thought, okay, but I didn't say that. So that is just, that is old and grumpy right there, isn't it? I'm sorry. Look at y'all are like, what? You're judging me big time right now, okay. But every dad's like, that would be a great day on the first time. So... Anyways, so my daughter uh, is, is uh, she's just fun, and those of you that know her, just really passionate and, um, gosh, super sweet. But she sent me this message this morning, and uh, I don't know whether um, to be encouraged or disturbed, but it was, if, if yeah, she's nine, she's nine, if you were murdered... I will not be at your funeral. You know where I'll be? I'll be in jail for murdering the person that knows that murdered you. You're welcome. <laughs> I was like, now well, that's love right there. Oh my. oh my golly. So do not mess with me because my daughter... My daughter is going to come after you. So, oh, gosh. So cute. So I'll tell her, like, thanks for that lovely message this morning. So anyway, so we are in our Unashamed series, and we have beginning, uh, we've been starting these, this series and each one of these teachings with this verse in John 20 that's, that's where Jesus said, um, just as I have been sent by my Father, even so I am sending you. And that that is for us. And so we, like that old movie, the Blues Brothers, are on a mission from God. But it's easy for us to get the, the script switched. Like, um, a lot of times we can maybe decide on our own what our mission is for our life, and then we ask God to bless that, like make that happen for us. And instead, what Scripture says is that God has His vision and His mission for our life, and then, then we fit into that, that that really is the priority, that joining him on his vision, like that is what really gives us life, and that's what we were designed for. And so instead of us calling the shots, which tends to be like I've heard, you know, um, authors say that this is kind of an American consumer Christian idea that I have my mission or what I've self-decided, and I'm just going to ask God to bless that. But God is really calling us to follow 
and really to submit ourselves to what he has for us. So we kind of like fall in like those in the military, okay, those that um, have this commanding officer that is an authority that they trust. So like in 2 Timothy 2, it says this, so no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So the goal that the writer was after was that we wouldn't get entangled in matters that aren't priorities for us as Jesus followers. And there's something really powerful about knowing our mission. It gives us this purpose and a sense of clarity in life. Like, what should I do next? There's definitely direction there when we are on mission with God. There's something really peaceful about knowing that we're in the center of God's will. Just this feeling of fulfillment, satisfaction, encouragement, even in the midst of some really difficult times. I think when we know that we are on like mission with God and partnering with Him, that when things are really difficult, there's still this just confidence that you just know you're doing what's right and you're doing what God's called you to. And that contentment is something that is really important in life. So last week we looked at Jesus and Paul and a guy named Hudson Taylor and how they tailored their method and their message to relate to their audience. And so instead of expecting others to adapt to their message, they did this thing where they moved toward their audience, related to them where they were coming from. And then we talked about one of the main ways that Jesus transferred his knowledge and his lifestyle to others. It was through these two things, association and demonstration. So he would simply spend time with his disciples. So then class was always in session, and he would do excursions with them. They would take off to other cities together. They would eat meals together. They would travel together, and they would simply learn from his example. So there's that phrase, more is caught than taught, and that was really Jesus' method, this apprenticeship thing where we are going to do life together, and the disciples would just learn from him naturally through that process. And so initially, his instruction to them was really generic, pretty general. It was kind of like, come and just follow me. Come and follow me. That's kind of the command or the, the ask that he threw out to some of those early disciples. And then as those years, they had about three years or so together, as that progressed, then it got more, um, there was more clarity and it got more explicit. Okay, here's what it's going to look like. Here's what our strategy is. We're going into these cities 
I'm going to send you out in twos. There were a number of things that got more explicit. But it all started with just that simple phrase, just follow me. And I think for a lot of us, that's where we're at, where we're just saying, God, we just want to follow you. Now can you help us see what that looks like in everyday life? Then we went on to Paul, and we looked, how Paul, we looked at how Paul shared the gospel, shared the message of Jesus differently in different locales. So when he, within, when he was in Thessalonica, he shared it differently than he did when he was in Berea. And then he moved on to another city, to Athens, and he communicated even differently there, all based on the audience and kind of where they were coming from. And then we finished with looking at this missionary, this guy Hudson Taylor, this young guy who felt like God was really calling him to China and how he adopted the Chinese wardrobe and their hairstyle and even the way they walked, met them on their turf, all while he was being criticized by other missionaries who were there because he was becoming like them. Okay, well, let's think about that, that phrase, that criticism that was kind of levied at Hudson Taylor, that he was becoming like the Chinese. <laughs> um, really, when you think about that method, that strategy, that is exactly what God does. And that is what he did. Jesus became a human to reach humans. And the people he spent time with, there was enough time that he spent with people that were outside of the faith that he was accused of what? Being a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Can you imagine that? How awesome is that, that God in the flesh, was accused of being a friend of sinners. That is awesome. That means he is friends with us right here in this room because that is what, what each of us, that's what we are. Paul, as we talked about a little bit, Last week, and we're going to read this section again, he became whatever he needed to, to reach the audience he was speaking to. Why did these people do this? Jesus did this. He was God in the flesh to reach us. Why did Paul do what he did? Why did Hudson Taylor do what he did? Was it just strategy or was there something deeper that was motivating them. What it was, this deeper thing, was love. Love for sinners that didn't know Jesus. For those that were lost and confused, they were hurting, spiritually restless, spiritually curious. All three of them took chances major risks, put themselves at high personal risk to take one for the team for us. 
So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 9, and we mentioned this last week. This is Paul talking. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. There it is, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. He did it for them. Now, when we look at Paul and we remember kind of his religious, this hyper-religious upbringing, I think, at least, I mean, this is just my opinion, but he was pushed and he was really strong in his Jewish beliefs. And I think he was probably motivated more by his belief that he was right about things. This is the right way for me to be. This is the right way for us to live. I would even say there was probably some self-righteousness there and even admits that he had this ambition that he wanted to advance beyond the traditions of his fathers. And so there's ambition and self-righteousness and this feeling that I have it right. Well, he never mentions like, Back then, I was really motivated by love. But then after he becomes a Christian, then we see this consistently mentioned. This motivation, this internal motivation of love. And then he is willing to endure anything, anything for the sake of others. So he's gone from being high and mighty and proud of his religious accomplishments and then being willing to do anything for the sake of somebody else. 2 Corinthians 11 says this, and uh, John, you and me, we were talking about this the other day, where Paul says, I have worked much harder been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly in the move, on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in, dangers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? He has endured a lot. And he is willing to go through all of this. What has changed 
this guy? What changed him? It was one encounter with Jesus himself. And it was this profound understanding that he was forgiven and saved from his sin. That was it. 1 Timothy 5, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 17. Paul says this, and whenever I see this kind of statement at the beginning of a verse, I always think this is going to be really important. He starts with, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Paul is essentially saying Jesus showed him mercy and forgiveness. And it was also for our sake, too, that we could look back and say, wow, you saved him, you can save me, you can forgive me, to communicate God's immense patience. Let's be honest, um, shame is something that probably every one of us in the room has had set in at some point in our lives. Some for a long time, and it has eaten us alive. Well, Paul here is speaking directly to your shame. He is saying God was faithful to forgive him. He wants you to hear that he has immense patience with you and with us. And I think this is the bedrock of the gospel. I think this is one of the reasons that it grew, this message grew so quickly and so powerfully, is the disciples were not preaching the same old, same old in different clothes. Because that was all that people had heard back then and even now. It is religion. That's what gets preached. The disciples' message was not religion. It was not do these things, don't do these things. It was not the Buddhist idea of denying yourself. It was not the Muslim idea of pray five times a day towards Mecca, make a pilgrimage to this city. It was not the Mormon idea of giving a tenth of all of your income, plus take a two-year missionary trip, wear special undergarments, that kind of stuff. It was not more religion. It was God so loved you that he gave his only son that you might believe and have eternal life. And that was good news. It was not more stuff for you to do to please an angry God. That was not the disciples' message. And it hit hard with people. 
all of a sudden the heart of God is displayed to humanity through Jesus. The kind of God that on the cross would look at a thief next to him who's lived his entire life most likely disobeying any authority out there. And he says, I tell you the truth, you will be with me today in paradise. That is the God that we serve. That is what set the world on fire. Because forgiveness is what we all long for. We long for someone who knows who we are and is still okay with us. God, the God of the Bible, knows all. He has more on us to indict us than anybody else. He knows our thoughts, our intentions, our motives. That's a scary thought. If there's anybody that has evidence of our guilt, it's God. And yet, He offers forgiveness. Which brings us to kind of a demonstration of this series and its title, Unashamed. When we think about that title, it's actually a truth for each of our lives when the gospel is laid on top of it. Unashamed. Why? Because God was willing to become shame and sin for us, to set us free so we could walk away sinless before a holy God. He took our shame we become spotless. He took the sentence away and we walk away, or I should say, he took the sentence and we walk scot-free. Wow. And that is what motivated these men. That's what motivated Paul. He was not motivated by a desire to do more. He was motivated by the love that God had shown for him and he knew was for everybody else. And then their motivation was not for self anymore. It was for others. That love for people, that welled up, welled up, propelled him internally. And that's Christianity. And there is nothing else like that on the planet. 1 Thessalonians 1 says this, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what drove the gospel to the ends of the earth and what changed all of human history. It was faith, love, and hope. That is what 
motivated them. And so if you open up a concordance, okay, concordance is like a list of, if you are looking for um, maybe one word in a verse, and you know that it's got the word love in it, the concordance will show you all the verses that have love in it. Well, if you open up a study Bible, there's like multiple pages that have the word love in it because it was the bedrock, the foundation of their faith, and it constantly came up because that is what motivated them to live lives so radically different than their neighbors. Think about these things that the Jesus followers were known for. One, they were known for telling the truth, okay? They were known um, for this community that the more affluent would sell their properties to give to others who had less. They were known for taking care of widows and the less fortunate, these Christians. They would pray for their enemies and not fight them. When people would want to discard an unwanted baby, they would put them outside, like outside the city limits to let them die in the woods. And the Christians would comb the woods, find them, and then raise them as their own. They had women, the Christians, that were not only involved in their churches, but they were right next to the men, laboring with them. The culture around them excluded them from so many things, but in this Christian thing, this new community, they were leading along with men. And then the Christians were known for forgiving, giving, serving, and loving one another in a radical way. That's what this motivation of love started to do in them. Like, for us as a community of faith here in Orlando, we won't reach Orlando with fancy marketing or worship leaders with really cool hair. Um, that's not going to do it. Real change will be us loving people. Like, that's just the grassroots hard work. And it's the stuff that really matters. I love Colossians 3, where it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another, if any of you has a grievance against someone, look at this. Here it is. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all, put these over all, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As a pastor, sometimes we ask ourselves, like, how do we know if we're really, you know, being successful or whatever. Um, is it the size of the church? Is it our budget? If it's our budget, we're really in trouble, okay? Um, is it how many follow us on Twitter? I have 94 followers. Oh, yeah. Almost all of them football friends. But anyway. No. What makes us feel like 
God, we, this, is, this is what you called us to, is when we hear about you guys loving each other. When I hear about people taking a Saturday morning or a Saturday day and working your butts off at somebody's house, when I hear about you guys telling someone else about Jesus and sharing your story with somebody, when you're inviting your friends to God on tap or you're leading a small group or something and for the first time, just things that like take courage on your part, like that's the real stuff. When I hear that shame that's crippled some of you that that's subsiding because you're starting to believe the truth of God, that is when I think, man, this is what God is after. So um, I wanted to invite the band to come back up as I finish here. I admit, like when I first came to Christ as a sophomore in college, it changed me inwardly and also outwardly, too. I went from a timid, fearful college student to someone who was outwardly joyful and, I would say, bold, not in an arrogant way by any means, but just confident of what God had started to do in my life. And I'd have to say this sounds really cheesy, but I felt like there was my heart was smiling constantly. And after growing up, like with years of guilt and shame, I felt clean and spotless. And that hit really hard because I knew that I didn't deserve any of it. The fact that God forgave me was just, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Motivated me internally to love others. I saw a really good quote from John Piper the other day. He said, we Christians should be the most humble, thankful people on the planet because God has opened our eyes to see how little we deserve and how much he has done for us in Christ. So I'm going to finish this morning with this verse, 1 John 4, 10 through 12. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, that was the first thing. God loving them and them connecting with that. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So what I see here in this verse is, listen, Listen, church, listen, those that are following Jesus. If we love one another, we're doing well. And that means loving people the way Jesus and Paul and Hudson Taylor did. Enough to associate with others outside our circle. Enough to demonstrate the gospel to them and to communicate 
to them, even at our own personal expense, like good soldiers, to associate, to demonstrate, and to communicate. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to you. No wonder you asked the church, like one of the things that you said, please do this regularly, was remembering what you did for us on the cross. Because you knew that the fuel for our fire was going to be just reveling and basking in the fact that we are forgiven and we don't deserve it. Thank you, God, that any shame that we had, that you took that. You became shame and sin on the cross. And that is the good news. You did that so that we could walk free and be forgiven and be clean. And so, God, we know that we have friends that are just in shackles with shame, that don't know that God would love and forgive them, that God forgives people like Paul. Surely he would be patient with them. God, give us those opportunities to demonstrate your love, to communicate to others, and to associate with those outside our holy huddle. God, we ask this in your name. Amen.